0: perfect Christmas. A perfect Christmas experience. That's what we all want, and that is what the advertisers are selling to us. In fact, the clip that we just showed is from a movie called National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. It's lampooning, it's satirizing this idea that we have to have a perfect Christmas. Listen, I hope that you're blessed this Christmas. I think Christmas is a great time of year, but I don't wish for you a perfect Christmas for several reasons. Number one, I know it's not going to happen. And the reason I know it's not going to happen is because your Christmas will involve people. And people, as my dad likes to say, are a pain in the neck. So unless you're having Christmas all by yourself in the middle of some deserted island, it's going to be ruined by the people around you. You're going to be trying to do something, and then they're going to screw it up. So I don't wish you a perfect Christmas for that reason. But the other reason I know you're not going to have a perfect Christmas is because I know that your circumstances aren't perfect. I hear your stories, I'm privileged to be your pastor, and I know that a lot of us this year are going to have imperfect Christmases because of our circumstances. There may be an empty chair around the Christmas dinner table, there may be extra room, emotionally perhaps, in your heart, maybe, maybe things didn't work out in your bank account the way they thought you thought that they would this year, you're not going to have a perfect Christmas. But today I actually have good news for you and I want to encourage you because I don't believe a perfect Christmas is ultimately what we need. I think there's something better than that that the Christmas season is about. And So I'm not going to wish for you a perfect Christmas, but something else as we'll talk about. Matthew begins his gospel with these words, and they're the sort of words that you and I skip over to get to the good parts. It's a list of genealogy. But like all the gospel writers, he knew what he was doing and he included this for a reason. As I already mentioned... We may not be familiar with the backstories, and so we miss the theological significance of what Matthew is trying to tell us. And what he was saying is not something that only applies to first century Jews who were first hearing the story. It also applies to us here in the 21st century in Dallas. It's that perfection doesn't matter. In fact, a perfect moral life is not what you need. A perfect moral life is not what you need. Now, Matthew lists... Five really interesting people in this genealogy of Jesus. I was trying to count them out as I read them. Now, there are some men in this genealogy who are good guys and some who are bad guys. Hezekiah, known as a, a wise and just king. Manasseh is known as a wicked king. But I think what really would have shocked Matthew's first century Jewish audience is the mention of five women in the genealogy of Jesus. There are several reasons for this. One is just the fact that they were women would not have been impressive to Matthew's audience. See, there was a thing devout Jews prayed, devout male Jews prayed at the time of Christ, and it was, Lord, I thank you for not making me a Gentile, a dog, or a woman. Women were not considered of value in that culture. So the very fact that Matthew would choose to list five women would have been significant, but he doesn't pick great heroines of the faith, he doesn't pick... Sarah, Abraham's wife, or Rebekah, Isaac's wife, to list, or Deborah, one of the judges. He picks five questionable women. Questionable because they are either Gentiles or related to Gentiles. Tamar is a Gentile. Rahab is a Gentile. Ruth is a Gentile. Bathsheba, who's not even mentioned by name. Bathsheba was married to a Gentile, whose name is Uriah the Hittite, and then finally Mary, whom we'll come to. But the reason that it's really surprising is not just the fact that they were women who were Gentiles but because their circumstances were far from perfect. Rahab was known as being a prostitute. Ruth gains her husband Boab through some certainly questionable circumstances. Bathsheba is part of a very sordid story, out of something out of a soap opera. Her, she's impregnated by the king while she's still married, and the king has her husband murdered while he's all fighting a war. But of all those stories, I don't know if you could top the story of Judah and Tamar. This is Matthew chapter 1, verse 2. begins the genealogy. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and then we get this strange sentence. Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, they were twin boys, whose mother was Tamar. And the reason you and I aren't having our hair stand up is because we don't know the story well enough. The story is found in Genesis chapter 38. Here's the summary. Judah, one of the 12 sons of Joseph, has himself a bunch of sons. He marries his first son off to a Gentile Canaanite woman named Tamar. The first son dies. In that culture, when your son dies without having kids, you marry your second son off to that first son's widow. First son is dead. Judah takes his second son and marries him to Tamar, and he dies. In that point, Judah says, I'm not going to spend any more sons on Tamar. And he sends her off to live by herself, which was essentially a death sentence. Because in that time and place, widows were taken care of by their families. But now she has no family. But Tamar decides to take matters into her own hands. Several years pass. She finds out one day which direction Judah will be passing through her country. And she dresses up and covers herself with a veil. We're not really sure what that means. It could have been just a simple disguise. It could have been some sort of reference to sacred temple prostitution. We're not sure. But in any case, she stands by the side of the road, and Judah takes her to be soliciting, and she accepts his offer. And later on, Judah says, What do I owe you? And she says, Well, here, just let me have your staff and your seal. And Judah gives it to her. They go on their ways. Tamar becomes pregnant with her father in law's children. Tamar becomes pregnant, and the word gets back to Judah. Hey, this woman who is your ex-daughter-in-law, this widow, is pregnant. She's not married. You know what the consequences are. She should be put to death. And Judah says, okay. And then Tamar says, before I'm stoned, send this to Judah. Let him know that this seal and this staff belong to the man who is the father of these children I'm carrying. She's carrying twin boys. They send the seal and the staff back to Judah. And then Judah, in a very Strange sentence says, she has been more righteous than I. He recognizes the situation. She has been more righteous than I. That's the story that Matthew chooses to reference here in the beginning of the genealogy of Jesus. Don't ask me what it means. I don't totally understand it. Like so many of the stories in the Old Testament, they seem almost morally questionable. But I'll tell you what it means, I think, for you and I. And one of the reasons Matthew was sure to draw attention to it in his genealogy. It means a perfect moral life is not necessary for you to have a relationship with God. Your sin cannot separate you from God. This is really good news. Because some of us are here on this Sunday having lived lives and made choices and made decisions that are the opposite of what God would have wanted for us. And we know it. Some of us have been walking in the wrong direction or as to quote the story of the prodigal son. We've, We've gone to a far country. But if you're here today, regardless of what you believe or what your life has been like, Matthew's Gospel tells us, and I'd just like to repeat this, that a perfect moral life cannot separate you ultimately from God. Your sin does not separate you from God. Not only your sin, the people in your lives that you've written off, who are making terrible choices, people whom you may be seeing in the next couple of days over the Christmas holidays, their sin ultimately cannot separate them from God, should they choose to acknowledge it and turn their lives over to Him. This is good news. That means there is no one who doesn't have a second chance in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no one we can meet whom God can't use. That's first, and perhaps most basic. What Matthew's gospel is telling us through this puzzling and fascinating genealogy of Jesus is that a perfect moral life is not necessary. Your sin cannot separate you from God. But even larger than that, zoom out a little bit. Matthew is telling us that a perfect circumstance, that perfect circumstances are not necessary. For years, in the 18th, 19th, and the beginning of the 20th century, China was the place for foreign missionaries to go. China was the hope of foreign missions. And there were numerous families who would raise their children in China, send them back to be educated at Oxford or Cambridge in some circumstances. The children would then come over, take over from their parents, they would die there, raise their children, et cetera, et cetera. There was families who, who gave everything they had to foreign missions in China. And so in 1949, when the Red Chinese came, and Mao Zedong assumed control of China, and China became communist, and they kicked out the foreign missionaries, it was a cataclysm for foreign missions. It was, it was a dark, dark time. It was all that we've worked for, has been destroyed. But you and I know today, of course, the fact that one of the great stories of the 21st century will probably be the strength and the rise of the church in China. There are more Christians today in China, even though they have to meet underground and illegally, than there were before the foreign missionaries were kicked out. Now, I don't think it was a good thing that the red Chinese came to power and they did very evil things. I don't think it was a good thing the foreign missionaries were kicked out, necessarily. But I do believe that God was able to use imperfect circumstances in part of his perfect plan. See, in large parts of the world, the gospel is associated with the West, as if people in America and Western Europe are the true source of the faith. Forgetting, of course, that the faith came from the Middle East itself and that the Gospels have been translated to any language they need to be translated into because the Gospels are not bound by culture. And yet, if somebody with skin like mine goes to China and begins to preach about Jesus, inevitably there will be a link between my Western cultures and the clothes I wear and the language I speak and the food I eat and the Gospel. God was able to use the rise of the red Chinese in china to further the purposes of the gospel in china i think we can see that now with the benefit of history so the question is what are your circumstances and how may god be using them in ways that seem surprising what are the difficulties you've had this year see difficulties can be good or let me be more precise God can use the difficulties for good. I don't believe the difficulties are good. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 5, suffering produces endurance, and endurance character and character hope. Maybe some of these dark times you're having in your life, problems in your work, in your marriage, in your family, diagnoses, maybe God can use them to produce something good in you. Not that the circumstances are good, hear me, but that God can use them for good. See, Matthew is reminding us that perfect circumstances are not necessary for God to work. You could almost not pick a more imperfect list of people than Matthew lists in the genealogy of Jesus. And clearly Matthew draws attention to certain people for a reason. He sums up his genealogy in verse 17. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David. 14 from David to the exile in Babylon and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. It starts with Abraham, God makes a promise. But then the people are enslaved in Egypt. But God brings them out. Culminating in the kingship of David, the the ideal king. Whom we know as much less than ideal. And then from David, it's a long moral descent to the exile. With king after king turning away from God. And so Nebuchadnezzar comes and the Babylonians come in 586 B.C. And sack Jerusalem and carry off people into exile. But God was still working in exile. Matthew says there was 14 generations, and then 14 and 14, a a number of perfection. And then he brought about the Messiah. Perfect circumstances are not required for God to work in your life. So the very things that cause you to feel a heavy weight this morning, the very things that you think, God, where are you? And I don't know the answer to that question. Those very circumstances, I still believe God can work. And perhaps as we close one year and begin another, maybe it's time for our perspective to just change. Instead of saying, God, make my circumstances perfect, maybe we should start praying, God, work perfectly through my imperfect circumstances. A perfect moral life, will ultimately not separate you from the love of God. Perfect circumstances cannot separate you from the work of God. And perfect significance cannot keep you from doing something great for God. Now, there are some famous names in this list. There's King David. I mean, David is world-renowned. There's Abraham. Abraham, the first patriarch. The one to whom God said, I'm going to make of you a great nation, and your descendants will be as many as the stars in the sky. But a lot of the names in here are names that we would never know about were not that they were included in Matthew's gospel. And of course, the very fifth woman mentioned is the lowliest in some senses of all, this little teenage virgin Mary. Somebody of no consequence whatsoever, and her quiet, righteous husband Joseph and yet they were the parents of the Messiah. See, the Apostle Paul says, God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the strong, the foolish to shame the wise. God delights in using things that are overlooked, that seem to be insignificant, for his significant purposes. You may not have a famous household name, your name may not be on the cover of the newspaper, your name may not be mentioned in history books right now, but I, I... I cannot overstate the possibility that you yourself and the small, humble choices you make either for or against God can be used in very significant ways for His ultimate purposes. I don't care what your education is. I I don't care what your marital history is like. I I don't care what's in your bank account. I don't care whether people know about you or not. I'm telling you. The story of God's work through people is that perfect significance is not required. In fact, you can almost say it's the opposite. God delights in using the low and bringing them up high. That's the first thing Mary sings when she hears the message that she's going to give birth to the Messiah. Oh Lord, my soul magnifies you. Because you're going to raise up the humble and bring down the mighty. But don't let anybody ever tell you that in the purposes of God you can't have great significance. In fact, one of the things I'd like to do as a parent, and I'd encourage you the same if you're a parent, I'd like to teach my children, I don't care what anybody else says or what it looks like or what grades you have or what college you go to or don't go to, I'm telling you, God can use you for great things in this world. Now the headlines of this world are written with kings and Caesars. But the only reason we know about Pontius Pilate and King Herod is because they're referenced in the story of the humble Messiah. And I'm telling you, one day, we're going to know about your acts of holy significance. Not because you were well known in your time, but because you were well known in the kingdom of God through your faithfulness and righteousness. What an opportunity. If you're a husband and a father and somebody asks you this question what was the what was the best day of your life what are you supposed to say yeah the day i was married or the day my kids were born you do know that right (laughs) yeah i didn't know that and earlier this fall I was with a group of people, it might have been our small group, I'm not exactly sure where, and the question was asked, you know, talk about one of the best days of your life. And I said, oh, 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 I have a good one. This past summer, we were at the beach, and I was there by myself all day in the water, all day. It was so fun. At the end of the day, my eyes were bright red like the carpet from the salt water. But I got to tell you, that was one of the greatest days of my life. And my wife was sitting next to me. And she didn't really appreciate that, that answer. Now, she's not here at this service, so I'll tell you. I was telling the truth. <laughs> it was a great day. Now, <clears throat> my wedding day was a great day. The birth of my son was a great day. This is a different sort of great, but it was a great day. We spent a week last summer with Elaine's family at Hatteras Island, North Carolina, along the Outer Banks. Usually the water is green. Uh, in the East Coast kind of way, but that one particular day was blue and clear. There was heavy surf, which I love. I grew up uh, going to the beach in West Africa. My parents let us go in the water no matter what. And so I, the heavier the surf, the more fun I have. There was a sandbar about 100 yards out of shore you had to swim to. And then the waves crashed there, and you could ride them all day. It was glorious. But it almost didn't happen. Now, at every <coughs> beach cottage in Hatteras, there's... Refrigerator magnets on the wall that say, beware of riptides. And they give you little instructions about what to do if you're caught in a riptide. For those of you who don't know, a riptide is a, a tide that catches you and pulls you the opposite direction of the main tide, the way it's going. And they're usually very narrow, but often very swift. In fact, people die, and people died last summer at Hatteras, being caught in the riptides because they panic, and they try to swim against it, and they exhaust themselves, and ultimately they drown. I've been hearing about riptides all my life never really been caught in one until the day before my great day last summer. And I was there with my wife's aunt and we were having a good time and then she got separated from me and about a half hour later I went to see where she was and she was pretty far out from shore with two other little heads next to her. And it looked like they were in some difficulty so I swam out to where they were. And there was a woman from Russia and her boyfriend there and they had had a bad time of it and they were really near exhaustion. And Vicky was trying to help them in, and we had what's called a boogie board, these styrofoam things you use to ride the waves with. And we put the girl on it and we tried to swim in, and after about 15 minutes, I realized we weren't going anywhere. And it just struck me, we're in a riptide. And when you're actually caught in something like that, it, it changes your perception, and you think, and I, I, I promise you I had this thought, I wonder if this is how I'm going to die. It's such a weird thought, because we couldn't get out of it, And they were getting tired, and we were getting tired. And there is no lifeguards on the shore here, and there's people standing along the beach. Well, ultimately, we decided to stop fighting the current, and particularly we had to tell this young couple who were panicking, stop fighting us. When people are often in danger, they begin to, sh- if you've ever seen people in drowning circumstances, they begin to flail out and to see anything around them, they were acting like that. Well, we, got, we were able to kind of calm them down, put the woman on the back of this board, and sort of swim with the current and slightly out of it until we finally got out of it and then made our long way into shore. We came in, I put my feet on the solid ground, and my legs were shaking. And I said, that's enough for me today. And I was reminded again of the power of the current. What Matthew is telling us is that there's a current of history, and God is directing it. And it's flowing in one particular direction. And all life is being caught up with it. But not all life is working with it. In fact, I'd like to suggest that one of the ways to think about the moral, ethical teachings of Jesus that so many of us like in the New Testament are his instructions of what it means to swim with the current of God. So you can choose to be greedy. But if you're greedy and swimming against the current of generosity, ultimately you're going to drown. That's why Jesus says, Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume and thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. You can choose to hate your enemy, and for many of us, it's the natural choice. But with the supernatural love of God working in our hearts, we realize that when Jesus said, what good is it to love your enemy, love your friends? Even the Pharisees do that. I tell you, love your enemy. We realize that hatred is a way of swimming against the current, and forgiveness and reconciliation is a way of swimming with it. See, the current is flowing in one direction, And this is why I believe, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. I've come to give you abundant life. I think what it means to have abundant life is to swim with the current of God. To work towards, and forgive the church word, holiness. To love God and your neighbor with perfect love. And it leads to destruction to try to fight it. Because the current is stronger than you are. What direction are you swimming this morning? Maybe it's time to turn around and swim with the current and let it take you somewhere, somewhere great. And ultimately where it's going is a new heavens and a new earth where the dead in Christ will be raised, the loved ones that we've lost we will meet again in a physical bodily way, where the low will be raised up, where the injustices will be made right, There'll be no more crying, death, or pain. That's the direction the history is going. It's not random. It's a great river flowing. So my prayer for you this Christmas, not that you have a perfect Christmas in the conventional sense, but that you would have a Christmas experiencing the perfect love of God. That regardless of your sin and moral record, that you would know that... A perfect moral record is not required. Regardless of your circumstances, we know that perfect circumstances are not required. Regardless of your significance or insignificance, know that significance is not required. That the same God who worked through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and Tamar, and on down through the birth of the Messiah, born in spite of King Herod, and in spite of Caesar Augustus, and raised from the dead in spite of Pontius Pilate, may that same God work through our lives this Christmas. Not that we'd have a perfect Christmas, that we'd give our lives over to the perfect God and make it a stream with His perfect river of grace leading us toward the promised land. in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. May it be so. Amen.